Hmm. Love that last chorus. Oh God, reveal your glory through the preaching of your word. So many times experiencing the richness of worship is associated with some sort of mystical thing that happens, but it's actually the, the thing that was mentioned earlier when we submit to the truth. That is the highest expression of worship and the greatest food for the soul to hear God's voice and submit to it. Well, starting today, we have five chapters left in the book of Luke. Can you believe it? Five left. Take your Bibles and look with me at chapter 17. Luke 17. This is, of course, going to be for us a a wonderful finish to Luke's gospel in these next few chapters because you could take really these five chapters and make them uh, another gospel account all its own. So much goes on in this section, even though it is a continuing narrative from what we've been seeing in the life of the Lord Jesus as he's faced off with the unbelief around him. And of course, this chapter begins uh, in that same scenario. Jesus has, of course, you know, been confronting the most dangerous form of false religion in the land at the time, Phariseeism. In Israel, there was a leadership that was full of false ideas that kept people from the gospel. And so it's no surprise that the Jewish leaders of Israel abruptly got out of the conversation that Jesus had been having. And no doubt, though the text doesn't say it, they had huddled together somewhere to continue plotting their revenge. In the meantime, then, Jesus takes an opportunity to strike while the iron is hot here, while all the unmasking of the Pharisees is fresh on the disciples' hearts, Jesus takes not only the 12, which he'll distinguish a little bit later, and and some who had remained around there, so distinguish them from the Jewish leaders of Israel, in other words, the disciples of the crowd, those who had followed Christ, along with the 12, are going to be addressed here. And in these opening verses, Jesus gives us a strong warning, as strong a warning as can be given. And at the heart of this warning is this. It is a warning about being a person through whom the spiritually vulnerable are led away from the gospel and into soul-threatening error. I'll say it again. It is a warning about being the kind of person through whom someone who's spiritually vulnerable is led away from the gospel into false religion or a soul-threatening error, or the kinds of beliefs that would lead them in a slippery slope toward apostasy. This is a warning to all the disciples of Jesus to guard against the sin of the Pharisees which he had been exposing. It is the sin of pretending to be a follower of Christ and using your influence to lead the vulnerable and the unsuspecting into more and more sin and away from the truth. Jesus, of course, his entire ministry had warned about this. Matthew 7, 15, beware of the false teachers and prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing 
Inwardly, they're pack hunters, ravenous wolves. But they are wearing the clothing that is deceptive. The clothing that looks like everyone else. Today's cry is to say nothing about these kinds of things and just give a gospel that is, as I said last week, sort of bears the the aroma of the sweetness of forgiveness in Christ, but nothing about the dangers of believing false things. Today's cry for unity is no different uh, in the superficial false unity kind than it has been uh, a cry throughout church history. All kinds of movements have come from within the church. Satan loves to do it because it is most deceptive. And it's a cry for a superficial unity that wants to say nothing about the dangerous things that leave the vulnerable and unsuspecting in an error that will damn their soul. That is what Jesus is after. And any cry for unity that that doesn't speak of those dangers with warnings like this is a problem. It was Charles Spurgeon who often commented along these lines and in one particular statement said, on all hands we hear cries for unity in this and unity in that. But in our mind, he said, the main need of this age is not compromise, but conscientiousness. The scriptures say, first pure and then peaceable. It is easy, he said, to to cry a confederacy, but that union that's not based on the truth of God is rather a conspiracy than a communion, end quote. He would later go on to say, charity by all means, but honesty also. Love, of course, but love to God as well as love to men, and love of truth as well as love of union. That's right. And we're warned by the Apostle Peter later on in 2 Peter 2, verse 1, that these subtleties come in in secret. They're secretly introduced. People are misled. You understand that. The word misled is used by Jesus when he warns the disciples in Matthew 24 of those who will come along with their words and mislead you. Paul would use that term in Romans 16 verse 18, to beguile you. That's an old word we don't use. The unsuspecting can be beguiled. It is the practice of some to go after the vulnerable. Those who are spiritually weak or ignorant or naive. The word unsuspecting, when used by the Apostle Paul, kind of has that negative connotation to it. It's a a pejorative sense where you're sort of out there with no filter and you aren't really thinking carefully or discriminately about these things. You're unlearned. And the, the person who pretends influence over you for the good but knows that you're unsuspecting, Paul says that person's going to go after the vulnerable. What does he do it with? Well, false content. He he changes things subtly. He's contrary to the teaching that has been learned, contrary to Scripture. Anybody that doesn't want to open the Bible and look at the specific passages is a red flag to you, not a yellow flag. It is a time to flee, not a time to jog. Somebody doesn't want to open the Bible and look at texts, specific texts. From Old Testament scriptures, the law, the prophets, and the writings, to the testimony of Jesus and the gospel and the history of the unfolding of God's people in the church, the book of Acts, and then all of the inspired New Testament witness of the apostles of Christ in the new covenant work of the New Testament. There is to be 
determination to know the content, to think about the content, to look specifically at the content. Why? Because the vulnerable and unsuspecting are going to be duped by those that come in and find them. Paul would say that such men come in with smooth and flattering speech. We've looked at that text in Romans 16 before. Smooth and flattering speech. They look for people who are non-discriminating about the truth, the spiritually lazy. They look for those who are brand new in the faith and green and don't really have a clue about what it means to live the Christian life yet and and go to war with the truth of Scripture uh, against temptation. They look for the the people who have some axe to grind, something in their heart, some agitation about authority. They look for people who are morally weak. They look for people who are easily intimidated and fearful. And they bring all kinds of subtle lies that no one wants to look at seriously in Scripture. There are big lies we've looked at that come from the culture and come from within churches that are so-called evangelical churches, big lies. Uh, There are always those who are going to say that the book of Genesis is not uh, accurate and that there's all kinds of mystery in it, all kinds of sort of poetic ideas in there that that have latitude. You can take it or leave it. Uh, Evolution and science is, is the way we ought to be thinking. There are other people who by the cultural mantra that truth comes from inside of you, it is generated inside of you, and your view is equally valid and authoritative as anyone else's. They'll come along and say people are basically good uh, rather than what the scriptures indicate, and that is that people are corrupt through and through. People will come along in the culture and say you can change by your own power when the Bible says there is no way for the leopard to change his spots without the mercy and power of God to change him. The culture will say happiness is not bound up in waiting for the life to come in the presence of Jesus Christ. Happiness is something you ought to go for here and now and that's all there is. And all kinds of other offshoots are introduced to the vulnerable and the unsuspecting. You can do anything if you put your mind to it. God helps those who help themselves. Many different ways to heaven. We're just talking about different things and talking past one another. You can't love others unless you esteem yourself first. That's a mantra that has been a part of our evangelical culture, and yet it's not biblical. Or some would say, since all truth is God's truth, then the conclusions of psychoanalysis and science are equal with the Bible and helpful to heal. Be true to yourself and you'll be happy. You don't have to believe in everything that the Bible says. You don't have to believe in Jesus to have a relationship with God. You can have a relationship with God and whatever your higher power is. Or God wants you wealthy and healthy. There are other saviors that God hasn't chosen to reveal to us. On and on it goes. How are we to treat them? With tolerance? No. We're to be warned. Sometimes the church and the culture say the same thing. The culture of unbelievers say you need to be silenced. And the church says the same thing. It says it's unloving to call someone out publicly even if they're teaching a false gospel. Or it's unloving to disfellowship with someone who refuses to repent of some immoral life or factiousness. Or it's bigotry to call someone's sexual preference what the Bible calls it, sinful. 
or it's arrogant to hold well-known popular teachers uh, to the scripture, to orthodox scripture. Seems endless, doesn't it, every week? Some Twitter feed thing or some Instagram thing shows another popular teacher saying things that are not biblical. And you read in the comment section people who profess Christ defending them. What does Jesus say about this? He says, you, you better be warned. You better be warned and, and you better remember this. You should never become an obstacle to the truth. You should never be a person who comes between the truth and someone seeing the truth. Someone's soul is at stake and you're the obstacle between them and the truth. Jesus says you should not be that person. How do we get away from that position and stay as far away from it as God commands us to? How do we stay away from the danger? Well, in this opening section in Luke 17, Jesus arms us for that very thing, to stay far away from being an influence in that way that someone might not see the truth because of our life. And he arms us with, we'll call them reinforcements, five reinforcements that protect us from the sin of becoming an obstacle to the truth. Five reinforcements that will arm us and protect us from the sin of becoming an obstacle, getting between the truth and another one's soul. Notice verses 1 through 10. Let me read it. He said to his disciples, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he's come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? Or will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink? He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? And so you also, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Now let's stop right there. And this, this, of course, is an interesting way for Jesus to address the problem. You might not think that these sections are related, but all of them have a thread running through them that begins with this opening warning. And from verses 1 to 10, Jesus offers these reinforcements to keep us from the danger of getting between the truth and some vulnerable person. Reinforcement number one, then, comes to us in the very opening sentence, and we'll call it this. Don't be naive about the world. 
Don't be naive about the world. Verse 1, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. It is inevitable. It's interesting, the NAS translation puts it in the positive, but in the original language, it is a negative statement, or, or it's um, a, a basic axiom. Literally, it says, it is impossible that no stumbling blocks should come. It is impossible in a world like ours, in a fallen world, corrupt as it is, that you will not encounter this danger. ESV says they are sure to come. Some of you read the NIV and it says things that cause people to stumble are bound to come. The idea is actually stronger than that. It is as strong as saying, look, it is impossible. If you imagine that you're going to be able to get on cruise control spiritually, if you imagine getting up every day and this is not going to happen, if you imagine some utopian church life in the midst of a culture where everything seems peacetime, that, that somehow subtle stumbling blocks aren't going to come to deceive you, your children, your spouse, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, and the next several generations, then you have mistaken the issue. You have become naive about the world. Jesus opens up with his surrounding disciples and his closest comrades with him and says, don't be naive about this. It's impossible to imagine that what you just saw these Pharisees dogging our heels, coming at the issues, and I've had to unmask them over and over again. Don't you imagine that that's some special case? They're just some in a long line of what is coming in waves. And you know, it's so true. You do not have to come to the church and get involved in some evangelistic effort to see this kind of stuff come at you. It comes at you in the mildest relationships at your job, it comes at you through a family member whom you've loved for years and all of a sudden there's some, something between you, between truth and error. It comes to you in some church discipler that you thought was walking faithfully and yet there were questions you had and things you couldn't answer and you suspected something but couldn't quite put your finger on it and suddenly there it is in your face. Sometimes it's just, you're just living your life in your little plot of land in your neighborhood and a knock comes at the door and Satan has sent his emissaries right to your porch. You don't have to go looking for it. Why? Because it is impossible that there would be a world in which we live until Jesus comes where this is not the case. And yet the church, as Keith Green used to say in his song, is asleep often in the light. We're asleep in the light. We imagine it otherwise. We don't think we have to battle. Look, if you don't think you have to battle every day, you are already becoming a stumbling block to, to those vulnerable people around you because you will not be able to protect the vulnerable when you're called to do so. You will not be. How many young families just bear children right into this world and think nothing of that? And five, six, seven, eight years later, suddenly they're starting to see some things and they're starting to need some things spiritually and they're kind of playing catch up, picking up where they should have already been picking up. Jesus says out of the gate, don't be naive about it. If you want to reinforce yourself, understand this. 
Spiritual naivete is a killer. It is devastating. You remember how strongly Jesus put it to his disciples when he was about to send them out. Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, he says, Listen up, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And you might say, why would you do that, Lord? Send me out as a tank in the midst of stick people. Let me have an obvious win here. No, I send you out as sheep. Oh, what a precious picture that is. Fluffy sheep in the midst of wolves. And so what did he say? Therefore, be wise, shrewd as serpents. You cannot get one up on a serpent when it is coming quietly at some place you can't see and it strikes with lightning speed and delivers its poison. He says, look, with regard to going out as a sheep in the midst of wolves, don't be naive. Be like a shrewd serpent, even though morally you're innocent as doves. Be that way. Today's complaint is, oh, you're too narrow and you're too definitive. Listen, I love what A.W. Tozer said. Moral power has always accompanied definite beliefs. That is true. The scriptures are definite. He, he goes on to say great saints have always been dogmatic, not in their own personal traditions and hobby horses, but in the scriptures where the scriptures are clear. Solomon warned his son that remaining naive about the dangers to the soul is both unnecessary and foolish, right? He gave Proverbs to make prudent the naive, the simple, the unfiltered. And Solomon warned his son it's, it's both not unnecessary and foolish. It's unnecessary because life experiences teach you to avoid things and, and take the world into obvious Destruction, these things that run the culture into destruction, watch them, learn lessons from them. It's unnecessary for you not to, not to be filtered by that. But it's also foolish because so many warnings have been given by God through parents and pastors and mentors and local communities of God's people where the truth is openly preached and spread. Look, if, if you're a part of anywhere in the vicinity of a Christian or a local church community, in the end, ultimately, God has given you a gift, and you should learn from that, that you don't have to be naive. We live in a fallen world. Satan is at work. His evil system is pervasive, and he is deploying false teachers all the time. They are using the most subtle and deceiving tactics to introduce error and lead the naive into soul-destroying beliefs and lifestyles. And Jesus says it's impossible in a fallen world for stumbling blocks not to keep on coming. By the way, Jesus uses the word for um, a stumbling block here uh, for that which entices a trap. Uh, some commentators call it a fatal trap, and that's not too strong a term. Enticements that cause the ruin of a soul. That is the word here, scandalon, the stumbling block. 
And Jesus would use it when rebuking Peter because Peter had rebuked Jesus. You remember Matthew 16, Lord, you're not going to Jerusalem and dying. What are you talking about? You're our Messiah. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block. There it is. You are interested in being a hindrance to the work that I have to do, which is the truth. And these vulnerable souls around me get behind me. You're a stumbling block. You're enticing to sin for the ruin of the soul. You know, by the way, that's the same idea in Romans 14, verse 13, when a believer is flaunting their Christian liberty in front of weaker consciences and endangering the spiritual growth. Man, we have become a church culture of that. We have become a church culture of I'm free, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free. And Romans 14 warns that you could destroy a, a Christian, their life, their testimony, their, their strong faith by flaunting what you say is your freedom to engage with the culture the way you want to engage it. Eh, sometimes I'm not really sure people who say they're free are really free. I sometimes say to a young Christian, if you've never given up and sacrificed any preference that might injure somebody else, the kind of preference that you used to have and live with even before Christ, if you've never tried to give it up, I wonder if you could ever say it's really a freedom. And with warnings like Romans 14, the word scandal is used. A stumbling block. We're not to become something that entices someone to destroy their own life and conscience. And of course, the passage I referred to earlier, Romans 16 verse 17, about those that, that take the vulnerable and unsuspecting and flatter them with, with this kind of speech. Paul says... Take note of those who cause, there it is, scandal on, hindrances. Those who are obstacles and they cause more obstacles and they perpetuate more obstacles between the church, God's people, and the truth. Take note of them. Why do you think when there's divisive people, some factious person who wants to blanket his view over some passage or he wants to disrupt the church against leaders who take it upon themselves and their stewardship to come to the scriptures and explain them? Why do you think we go very strongly at that issue with those individuals? You are being divisive. And by the way, that is a, that is a reminder to be very, very careful how you decide what you're going to, to do with the church. Be very, very careful about that. Open the word of God. Humbly bring yourself under scripture. Submit, therefore, to the shepherds that God has given to the church. If you don't do that, you could be an obstacle to other people seeing the truth clearly. You need to have your convictions and you need to live by them, but you better know they're from scripture. And if they're not, and you've been taught the scriptures and you ignore that, you're in this category. You're coming up on that category that Paul warns against. Don't be a hindrance. The church isn't to have anything to do with hindrances like that. Reinforcement number one, don't be naive about the world. Reinforcement number two, don't be flippant about what God says. Don't be flippant 
about what God says. Notice verse 1. It's inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. This is, this is the Lord Jesus telling us how dangerous it is to be flippant about what God says about sin, about what God says about the Christian life, about what it means to live a holy life, about what God says about the truth, the seriousness of truth, the precision of truth, carefulness with the truth. This is a warning about not drifting into a life of being flippant about what God says. Why? Because it's this serious. How serious? First of all, he says, woe to, the, to that person through whom this obstacle comes between the vulnerable and the truth that would lead that person to something that would damn their soul. So they're blind to the gospel because of your, your convoluting of it, your hatred of it, your dislike of it, your disdain or contempt for the people of God who spread the gospel, for your love of error, your love of sin, your love of unholiness. You become an obstacle between a vulnerable person and the truth, and if you're flippant about that, woe to you. Because that obstacle is coming through you. By the way, woe here is two things primarily when it is spoken. One, it is an expression of the most extreme grief. This term, when used in its context, almost always uh, has that idea of extreme. This is the most grieving thing of all. And secondly, it is a call for consequences. We might say a call for God to deal with it to save souls, even if it means retribution for the obstacle. So it, it, it always includes those two things. Woe to those through whom the stumbling block comes. Why? Because it's so grieving and it calls for God to act. And so Jesus says this whole issue of, of drifting into becoming an obstacle carries the weight of the most serious warning of impending disaster. How do we know that? Notice Jesus says it would be better. <laughs> the, the term is to be to one's advantage. Rather than be the cause of someone rejecting the truth, it would be far more advantageous Listen, having your life taken from you in the most horrible kind of circumstance. That's what he says. It would be better if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. That was, that was horrific death. You were not dead when you went in and there's no way out of it. You're going down and so you're going to be drowned by force. And notice he says, for someone to do it to him. So now there's violence associated with what Jesus illustrates here. This is a picture of someone having his life ripped from him, life as he knew it. No peace, sudden terror taken on wherever the perpetrator wants to take him, out of his control, tying a millstone around his neck and making it impossible for him then to survive it and throwing him violently into an undersea grave. Jesus says, it'd be better to have that. You say, what in the world? This is, 
such a harsh thing to say, such an such a offensive illustration. It, it just grips our humanity to see it so starkly like this. Why is that far better? Listen, Jesus' point is this, beloved, that in God's eyes, being a stumbling block to the truth is far worse than dying before you have a chance to make someone stumble or to make anyone else stumble. And I think about that when my, before I was a Christian. I mean, I'm warned in my heart as a Christian by this very statement which he's making to his disciples. But I think about the people I led into sin as a non-Christian. And if it weren't salvation that rescues me from continuing to do that in my life, Jesus says it'd be far more advantageous in the judgment for you to end your life now and have it ended violently by some frightening thing than to go on deceiving other people, more souls to your credit or discredit as the case may be. So you can sense the warning here. Don't drift into flippancy about the danger of leading others away from the truth. Because God will judge that sin far worse than if some evil people ended your life in some terrifying way, which would then keep you from hindering anyone else from the gospel for an even worse judgment of God. Can, can, can the Lord say it in any more strong terms? Scripture says in Luke eight seventeen, nothing is hidden that shall not become evident. And when you study the Gospels and you hear the Lord say something like he says in verse 2, my mind immediately went back to Luke 8, 17. And, and then I think, nothing is hidden. Well, I'm not hidden. And my heart's not hidden. And my motives aren't hidden. And there's nothing in secret that isn't going to be known or come to light at the judgment. And you start to pray, Lord, will there be Christians who've been hindered because of me from the truth? Because I was flippant with it. Not, not the times you're trying to be genuine and you're just genuinely wrong about Scripture. Not that. God has a covering grace in his mercy that, that we get to heaven at all and in Christ. But what about times I was flippant and careless and reckless? Or I got into a season of bitterness and I just didn't want to look at the truth. Lord, on that day, will there be someone? And I stood between them and the truth. My children. My grandchildren. My beloved friends. And then my mind went to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. For we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Look, I know we're justified by faith alone. I know we will never receive any judgment like the sinner receives. I know that. But there is a judgment seat of Christ. We will stand before the Lord, our maker, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And the scriptures in 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, we do that, we stand before him so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body. That's right. The, the fruit of our life will prove that we were saved and had the Holy Spirit. And yet the fruit of our life will also prove we were weak and infirmed and sometimes flippant about the truth. And as many stories in glory 
as we will hear, because God somehow miraculously and amazingly and mercifully used us to grow someone's faith, there will also be the knowledge of those opportunities we had, and we stood between people and the truth. Why? Selfish, proud. How many times have we stood between a loved one and knowing the truth because we would not admit the truth in our life? How many times have we not led someone else to seek forgiveness because we were unrepentant about those same sins in our life? How many times have I encouraged the sins of my children because I was not willing to deal straightforward with my sins in front of my children? How many times did they have a wrong view of a commitment to God's people because I didn't have a commitment to God's people the way that I'm called to? We, we can become flippant even as Christians and hurt the testimony of the Lord and be an obstacle to his word. Lord, help us not be an obstacle to your word. Help us not hurt somebody. And if there were ever a danger, if we'd ever become so flippant, drifted so far, that we misrepresent the truth deliberately and rebelliously and lead someone away from the gospel, Jesus says, end it now. He doesn't say you end it. He says it would be better if someone came and violently ended it so that no other soul would be endangered. You have an opportunity to repent. That's the advantage. Just repent. Don't be naive about the world. Don't be flippant about what God says. And that leads then, obviously, to a third reinforcement to protect against becoming a hindrance to the truth. Don't be negligent with each other's sins. Don't be negligent with each other's sins. Some people thought that Luke was just kind of sticking together a bunch of sort of proverbial ideas here that have no connection. But this is obvious here. Verse 3, be on your guard. Now, he's been in a warning section. I think that fits. Be on your guard. And how, how do I guard myself? If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. I love this. Beloved, this is not a treatise on forgiveness, though it does tell us to do so. There are other places like Matthew chapter 6 and Matthew 18 that give both parables and principles for the giving and receiving of forgiveness, which is all throughout Scripture. But here Jesus uses a popular teaching on forgiveness in the context of guarding your life against becoming an obstacle to the truth. And it basically looks at it from both angles. On the one hand, you should be one who sees, when you see a sin in someone's life, you're not a coward. You want to safeguard your life from becoming someone who's an obstacle to the truth? Look, when you see sin in someone's life, someone has fallen into it, someone has a weakness, you're going to have to face up to the reality that God has sometimes put you in their life to help them. 
And you know what? Jesus says, look, you can run the danger of being an obstacle to the truth by not confronting sin. Listen, that was the Pharisees all day long. They wouldn't confront anybody's sin. You know why? Because they didn't want their own confronted. Jesus says, look, the the confronting of sin and the forgiving of sin and the confession of sin and the acknowledging of these things is what keeps us from being an obstacle to the truth. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Don't be a coward. Don't shy away from that. Oh, beloved, we are a culture that loves to excuse sin professionally. We have professional excuse makers. We pay them money to give us excuses for our rebellion. Did you know that? Multi-hundreds of billion dollar industry. You go plunk down your whatever a month and that person will come up with all kinds of labels for your own choices and rebellion. We have all kinds of names for it. We love it so. That doesn't belong in the church. And then, conflict resolution? Really? Are you kidding? We don't like conflict. We hate, we hate even the thought of tension. And we will make a thousand excuses for why we should never have to engage in that. You've got the ostrich people. They bury their head in the sand. It'll go away. Like it never happened. Right. It never happened. Deep hurts never happened. You never think about them again. Somebody hurt you and they just treat an hour later like it never happened. It goes away with you, doesn't it? Yeah, it's gone. No big deal. And they do it a hundred times in a week and it's still gone because, hey, they're acting like it didn't happen, so why shouldn't I? Then you have those people who, who literally call it by a different name and blame shift. If I have to say I made a mistake, it's because of my environment or people or circumstances didn't go my way or pressure or you know how I feel and on and on they go Jesus is saying here if you want to be a safeguard of the truth and not become an obstacle between you and the truth you're gonna have to engage be on your guard by engaging I don't mean you're gonna be a finger pointer no, because Galatians 6.1 says that when you confront someone who's fallen into a sin, you're going to do it in a certain way. First of all, you're going to look at your own life and you're going to say, am I God's instrument right now walking in the spirit to be able to help this person? That means I have to have spiritual ideology. I have to have my mind trained on the spirit of God. I can't have any unconfessed sin in my life. I've got sin, but no unconfessed sin. I'm not a hypocrite. So... I'm spiritual, I'm the spiritual one, the one with the enablement of the Holy Spirit to help that person, and I'm going to restore them. I have to go with an attitude to restore, right, which is the word for healing. I, I, my goal in confronting someone in sin is to heal. Half the time, we don't mention anything because we don't really care if you heal. I just don't like the discomfort of confronting. Well... Nobody should love it, but sin is grieving enough, and truth is healing enough, and Christ is worthy enough, and love, the love of Christ constrains us enough to go to somebody and say, this sin is going to hurt you if you don't do something about it. I want to heal. I want to restore. And you're not listening 
You're not paying attention. I'm trying, but you're not. I mean, you've got to do that, beloved. Restore such a one, the scriptures say. You confront them. You come to them. This isn't a finger-pointing session. This is a coming-alongside session. You've fallen into a sin. I'm here to help you. Look, that safeguards the truth and keeps me from becoming an obstacle by neglect. Man, I, I think the church, the body of Christ, would be so much richer if we stopped worshiping our emotional comfort zone and bowed the knee to Jesus Christ on this command. If your brother sins, go to them. And even Galatians 6.1 says, do it in a spirit of gentleness. I like that. I like to be treated gently. I don't want somebody coming to me and saying, you're just a jerk. You're a rat. What's wrong with you? <laughs> well, it may be true, but gee whiz. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I feel terrible now. And it's not just because I should feel terrible. You, you're actually a terrible confronter. You need some technique. <laughs> you need some skill. In a spirit of gentleness, it's, it's, it's a gentle reproof that takes careful words and, and gentleness. It's, it's a Greek word used there in Galatians to speak of a, a soothing Influence doesn't mean it's not hard. Doesn't mean the person is going to like it. No, no, no. Lots of people don't receive even the softest reproof and care. That isn't the point. The point is you are to go in a spirit of gentleness. Why? Because you're taking heed, the scriptures say, to yourself lest you be tempted. That's right. But for the grace of God, I'm here without falling into the same sin. Taking heed to yourself lest you be tempted, either by the same sin they're falling into or tempted to pride that I somehow don't have your problem. Jesus says here, don't be negligent with each other's sins. If someone sins, rebuke them. And then he says the other side, you're not only to not be cowardly, but, but you're to be gracious and kind and not condescending. He says it, if he repents, forgive him. And then he says, if he sins against you seven times, notice, a day. That's different than when Peter said, how often should we forgive? And he said seven times, and Jesus said 70 times seven. He, he didn't, he, he sort of implied per day, so you'll never reach that number. But nonetheless, Luke includes the term a day here. Look, if you, that, that happens, doesn't it? We've sinned against sometimes our spouse or our children. How many more times than seven in a single day? And and if we come back and repent, the body of Christ is to lavish compassion on that. Why? No bitterness, no resentment, no pride, no condescension. It keeps us from becoming an obstacle to the truth. Look, if you want to show Jesus Christ to vulnerable souls, lovingly confront them on the thing that will rob them of Christ's joy, sin in their life. If you want to show Jesus Christ and not be an obstacle to who he is, to a vulnerable soul, lavishly forgive because that's who Christ is and that's how we were treated by Christ. We're forgiven. And Jesus says, don't be negligent with each other's sins. As often as it happens. You want to reinforce your life against the danger here? danger of Pharisees, their pride, 
their rebellion, their hiddenness, their secret lives of sin, their disdain for forgiveness, their disdain for, you know, engaging with real love to help other people. It was all about them. It was all about their rebellion. It was all about their hidden life. False religion is that way, beloved. You want to stay away from that, then don't be naive about the fact that those things are going to come in your life. Don't sit on the sidelines and don't be flippant about what God says about it. It's far more advantageous for someone never to have met a vulnerable soul to deceive them rather than to mislead them away from the gospel And then engage. Don't be negligent with each other's weaknesses. Get in each other's lives, as hard as it may be, no matter what the culture says, and do what Jesus says. It will guard your life from this tendency to get between vulnerable people and the truth. It's hard work, isn't it? But the Lord's grace is sufficient. Two more, but that'll be for next time. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Oh, thank you so much for rebuking and reproving our hearts. We don't want to be in between you and vulnerable souls. We often are. We find ourselves weak and limited. We find ourselves sinful and negligent. We find ourselves naive and flippant. Please forgive us for these things and help us stay away from them. Lord, may we never lead someone away from the gospel even in our worst moments, keep us from not believing the truth of the gospel and, and your love shown to us at the cross. And help us to never become that person that is keeping someone from knowing you. Help us to be careful, thoughtful, precise, even convinced and immovable, but to do it with love and grace and cover over with your grace our infirmities and weaknesses. And we ask this because of you, because you have forgiven us at the cross forever, because of you shown us so much love and kindness. Help us to do that same thing with, with the body and with the lost culture around us. We do this for your glory's sake, Lord. Amen.